Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week I'm scuttling down some dark corridors of conversation with an upcoming star in the world of horror. Joe Kaplan is the author of the incredible new haunted house novel, It Will Just Be Us. As you'll hear in our conversation, this is a book I, I feel pretty strongly about. Do you like The Shining? Um, what about The Haunting of Hill House? If haunted houses with hideous backstories are your thing, then trust me, Joe's novel is one you don't want to miss. It was published on September the 8th by Crooked Lane Books, and if you've already read it, please let me know what you think. If not, go get it right now. It's the perfect read as the night's drawing. But for now, let's take a trip to the eeriest swamp you've ever seen, deep in the woods of Virginia. There's a house there with a locked room, and inside there's plenty to talk about. Let's talk scared. Hi, Joe, and thanks for coming to Talk Scared with me. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. How are things where you are? Have you been getting much writing done or has it been a lockdown, been a blocker? I have gotten some writing done this summer. I actually finished writing a new novel um, and I sent that off to my agent pretty recently. So at the moment, I'm kind of taking a break from writing uh, because the semester just started. So I've been focusing on teaching. A new novel. That's exciting. Having just read this one. But, but your new novel for the for the benefits of this podcast is It Will Just Be Us. Um, and I believe that's published on September 8th. Is that right? Yes. By Crooked Lane Books. So that's actually two days from now at the time of recording. But by the time this goes live, it will we'll have been at a week or so and probably made quite a splash. So to set my stall out, I, you know, enjoy the books that all my guests write because I only invite people on the show whose work appeals to me to begin with. But in your case, I've got to make a kind of special admission. I genuinely think this is a once in a generation haunted house novel. I think it's up there with the lights of The Haunting of Hill House, The Shining and Tanara Reviews, The Good Place. I think it's it's that in that panting of haunted house novels. I really do. Wow. I, I don't even know what to say to that. Thank you. Yeah, everyone needs to go and buy this book, honestly. It is a game changer. It's so good. It's a short-ish novel, about 250 pages, but it's a very complex story. Can you get the readers up to speed with a brief summary before we begin? Otherwise, I may mangle it. Sure. Um, It Will Just Be Us is a story of two sisters who grew up in a haunted house. It's a rambling old mansion on the edge of a swamp. And it's haunted not really with typical ghosts, but by echoes of the past that sort of repeat themselves over and over again. And Sam is living home again with her mother when her heavily pregnant sister Elizabeth uh, moves back home after a fight with her husband. So there's a lot of tension there. And this is when Sam starts seeing a new echo or ghost in the house of a young faceless boy who likes to terrorize and it will be up to Sam to figure out who this boy is uh, before he destroys their family. Yeah, that that you kind of did that without giving any spoilers away. My favorite <laughs> question to ask to start off with, what was the germ of the idea behind it would just be us. So I think there were kind of two little germs. <laughs> One of them was really just that at the time that I came up with the idea and started writing it, my sister was pregnant with her first child. And there's just something 
creepy to me about, I guess, the question of who is this kid going to be? You know, you don't really know who you're giving birth to, I guess. So the, you know, kind of the demon seeds idea. Um, And the other part of it was just sort of that classic philosophical question, would you kill baby Hitler? And I think those two germs kind of just gave a little bit away that I didn't in my synopsis. (laughs) Still, you've still got away with it, I would say. Still a lot of leeway there. I've long thought, right, that Shirley Jackson wrote, like, the incontestable sentence about creepy houses um, in the Horton of Hill House when the the whole whatever walks there walks alone line. That, for me, was the the capstone. But you kind of rival her elegance in this novel. So obviously I've underlined it to death and I've picked out various things, but if anything sums up Wakefield uh, Wakefield House where all this takes place, it's that you describe it like the sprawling Gothic eyesore where terrible angles meet at sharp and angry glances like an unhappy jigsaw. Did you intentionally set out to write a balls-to-the-wall Gothic novel? Yeah, well, first of all, your comment on Shirley Jackson's wonderful line, whatever walks there walks alone. Uh, I totally agree that is such a power. I mean, the whole first paragraph of that book is so powerful. Uh, and I was definitely leaning into that when I was uh, creating Wakefield Manor. Uh, yeah, I really wanted to write that straight up super gothic uh, setting uh, except hopefully do something a, a little bit different than what had been done before with with the gothic genre. Well, we'll, we'll get to what you do differently because there is a lot of innovation in this. First of all, I, w- I want to play a little game. So um, I always like to know about which authors have made biggest impressions on people's work and stuff. And I want to ask you that question, but I want to have a little guess first to see if I am in any way right. So Shirley Jackson is everywhere in the novel. That's not in... in it's not in any way derivative of her, but she's obviously kind of in the wallpaper of this novel. But I'm, I also, I sound like a wine describer here, like a wine sommelier, but I also see like shades of Hawthorne and Poe and Ellen Glasgow's Jordan End, as well as Stephen King. Am I at all on the money there with that stuff? You're completely on the money there. Yeah, exactly. All those authors and more recently, the sort of folk horror of like Adam Neville and things like that also really speak to me. Oh, so talk to me about Adam Neville. I, well, I mean, there's the ritual, which everybody seems to know now because of the, the movie that mm-hmm. was made. And it's just such a classic folk horror story. I really want to read his new one too, um, The Reddening. I haven't picked that up yet. He seems to really hit on what I love about the whole folk horror, you know, leaning into folk tales and, and the hauntings of the forest. Uh, so I, I feel like I lean a little bit into that too, in some elements of the swamp um, and into the kind of folktale elements. Is the great dismal swamp a real place? Yes, it is. So that was actually one of the more interesting things that I got a chance to uh, research for the book. Uh, I initially hit on it just because how can you go wrong with a name like that? The great dismal yeah. swamp. I was like, are you kidding me? This is a real place. Uh, and it is. It's a huge swamp, like right on the border of Virginia and North Carolina. It really has a fascinating history. So I discovered in my research that, you know, that whole little history that I go into in the book about how escaped slaves 
created communities in the swamp. They were called maroons, um, you know, because the swamp is just so treacherous that no one was going to come capture them and take them back into slavery. They were kind of safe because they were in such a dangerous place. That's a, that's real. That That's a legitimate part of history. And I had never heard of that before. And I was utterly fascinated. So that was one of the really more interesting things that I found out about that place. And I really wanted to touch on it in the book. So I hope I did, you know, a little bit of justice to that history in the story that we get, uh, the sort of backstory of Meriday and Clementine and, and that family who escapes into the swamp. Oh, you definitely do. But I was wondering about the, about the research because you're in Southern California now. Are you a California native? I'm not. I'm actually a Chicago native. But I, but I, I figure you're going to ask, have I spent any time near the Great Dismal Swamp or Virginia? And the answer is no. I just thought it was a really interesting place. So I didn't get to do any, any on-the-ground research. Well, that, that does not come across, because I think you evoke the, um, the area really well. So how, how did that work? Did you just sort of sit down with Google and, and, and just write it? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I, I'm really invested in, in trying to get those kinds of details right. You know, I feel like especially writing a horror novel, there's so much that's potentially requires suspension of disbelief that I want the real world elements to feel really real. I feel like it's the feel of it, you know, the way people talk, just the everyday minutiae. I feel like that's the part that is hardest to to get without like firsthand experience. And I've been thinking about this a lot because that new novel that I mentioned that I just finished writing takes place mostly in the Old West, um, which is obviously I don't have any firsthand experience with that. So that also required a lot of research. But I'm fascinated by settings in stories. I really want my settings to come to life. So when I do research, it's often on the setting, what the place is like, and how the people inhabit that place. Well, I think that kind of sums up what this book is actually about, isn't it? I mean, quite literally, it's about a setting that comes to life and about people kind of learn to inhabit it. I've got to go back to this this new novel. Are, are you writing a weird Western? Kind of. I, I don't even know that I would call it a Western, even though it takes place in the Old West. It's more almost more of like a murder mystery creature uh, creature story. I'd say I wouldn't call it a typical Western because it's deliberately not about like cowboys and gunfights and, and stuff like that. It follows a frontiers woman and her family who moved to Nevada to, to get into mining. Her husband gets, a, gets work at the mine and she's just kind of navigating this strange, dusty frontier town. And also people are mysteriously dying. There's some creepiness w- with how they die. Uh, but that's kind of, the focus of that. And so for the research for that one, I really focused on women of the Old West and, you know, what, what were their stories? What were they doing? Because we always hear about the cowboys and the guy, the, the rugged frontiersman. Yeah, he sounds like Willa, Willa Cather meets Bone Tomahawk, which I am just fully on board for. Ooh, I like that description. <laughs> okay, have you got, do you have a, a title for that that I can drip feed? You know, I'm always hesitant to, I guess, announce a title because... My titles, I feel like, always change. It Will Just Be Us was originally called something else. <laughs> okay, that's fine. So I have a title, but I don't know if it's going to be the title. So I don't, I don't know if I want to announce it. I, I just finished writing it, so it's, it's pretty early. Keep it close to your chest, that's fine. What was It Will Just Be Us originally called? It was called The Drowning House. 
Oh, okay. I like that. I really like that. But I think it's it's a it's a little bit more cliche. So I think it will just is a lot more ambiguous. I agree. And I couldn't work out why it was called that all the way through. And then there's one point in the novel which makes it, if not crystal clear, because it could st- it could still mean other things. There is one point where you realise, and it's very creepy. Yeah, I love that part. Yeah, yeah, that really creeped me out. Talking about folklore, going back to folklore and where you're from and stuff, I've got to ask. In the backstory of, of Wakefield Manor, you introduce this ancestor who once lived there, uh, Mad Catherine. And w- one of the best things about, you know, the novel is this uh, this layering of history uh, and the way you bring that out in, in the haunting itself. Mad Catherine, I was fascinated by because this is a character who just keeps building and developing the house year after year. Is that a reference to the Winchester house? Oh, Totally. I'm fascinated by the Winchester house and I've always wanted to go visit, but I've never managed to actually get there. So yeah, she was definitely inspired by Sarah Winchester. So for those who don't know, Sarah Winchester was a the wife of Mr. Winchester, of, of Winchester Rifles fame. Am I right in thinking this, that she was so devastated by the amount of death that his business had wrought that she thought ghosts would take their vengeance unless if she ever finished building her house? Yeah, I think so. I think there's like a couple of different interpretations of why she continued uh, building, but I think that's the prevailing one. There's a really shocking movie but with Helen Mirren called Winchester that I wouldn't recommend, but it tells the story. But isn't the Winchester house like, it's pretty close to where you are in Southern California, right? Yeah, it's in Northern California. So it's in the same state. I mean, California is huge, so yeah. it would still take me a while to get there. But uh, yeah, I Maybe when the pandemic is over, I can make a trip. Sorry, this is my British sensibility coming out where I think, you know, I forget that California is the size it is and that because we can go anywhere in about an hour and a half. I forget that you have to go on a road trip to, to get anywhere. Getting back to the actual themes of the novel rather than the detail. I would say that It Will Just Be Us is both a properly traditional ghost story, but it also does really new, interesting things with the idea of what ghosts are or what a haunting can be. And without asking you to spoil anything, where did you get the idea for kind of what's going on in, in Wakefield Manor? I think that's exactly what, you know, what I mentioned, I wanted to do something slightly different than your kind of typical Gothic novel. Uh, that, that, that's really the thing that, that I was thinking of that I was trying to do differently. I really love books that kind of play with time and get all, you know, into the the potential weirdness of time. Uh, I mean, I think last year I read, I don't remember when I read it. I read The Gone World by, oh my God, I'm going to get his name wrong if I try to say it. Uh, he has a crazy last name, Tom Switzerlich, something like that. And it's, it's like a sci-fi novel, but it's very creepy too. And it does really, really cool things with time. So... I was just, you know, I didn't want my ghosts just to be kind of typical vengeful ghosts or anything. And I was thinking about time and, you know, the the potential for it to get like messed up in some way. What happens when time stops just moving forward very smoothly? Um, so I came up with this idea for this place where time kind of folds back on itself and, and just repeats so actually, I was I, I was doing an interview with somebody recently, and they they kind of asked, you know, what do the ghosts want? Uh, and I was like, that's a really interesting question because usually ghosts want something, but these ones they they don't really because they don't know they're ghosts. They're just echoing. They're echoes of what already came before. So in that sense, 
most of them have really, don't really have any agency until we get one who does. And that's where things get tricky. Yeah, and that's where you get, there's almost different species of ghosts, almost, or different phenomena yeah. in this. And it's the lady with the X's for eyes. The fact that Sam, our protagonist, finds her so scary when she's so generally comfortable with the other ghosts knocking around in the, in the house. That, that gives you a real chill because it, you know, it really ups the stakes. And then, of course, when we meet Julian, which I'm not going to give too much away, readers of the book will understand all these references when they read it. But yeah, it really elevates things by being like, oh, okay, these ghosts are dangerous. So what I've got to ask is, do you believe in ghosts? That's a good question. And maybe this is weird for a horror writer who writes about ghosts, but no, uh, I'm a total skeptic. But I'd be willing to be proven wrong if someone can point me to a, a legit haunting. There is that whole take on the supernatural that it is just echoes of things past. So I wondered whether this was your attempt to write what you think ghosts are. But no, you're a complete skeptic. Well, maybe that is just my rational side coming out, though. Maybe I, I feel like I was probably trying to figure out if ghosts did exist, what would they be in a slightly more rational, I guess, view, view of hauntings. And so maybe that's what that is. I don't know. I didn't intentionally think of it that way, but it probably just came out naturally. What do you think? Because I, I get the impression that you're like, you know, really steeped in this genre. But what do you think makes a great haunted house story? I think, I think really leaning into the weird and the uncanny and, and genuinely making it creepy. Uh, we've all seen the typical haunted house tropes, uh, you know, a rocking chair that's rocking on its own, things like that. What, I think what makes a great haunted house story is when the author is really aware of why we're so scared of haunted houses. And it's that uncanny element of, you know, the house is supposed to be your your home. It's supposed to be the most familiar and comfortable place in the world to you. What happens when it stops being that, when the comfortable and the familiar now gets invaded by something unfamiliar and strange and inexplicable that you can't stop or can't control. So I think that, you know, stories that really lean into that, I find much scarier. So I may be getting a very kind of academic up my own backside on this one, but but Freud's theory on the uncanny is about the, the homely becoming unhomely or the familiar becoming unfamiliar. And this novel is full of people walking around the house in the dark, banging into furniture, not be able to find doors where they should be, not be able to navigate their personal space. Did you intentionally engage with, with that idea of the uncanny or did it just come naturally just by writing about a scary house? Uh, I think that it was always in my head, the idea of the uncanny. And in terms of, you know, we were academics talking to each other. So I think <laughs> yeah. we could definitely go into, uh, you know, I teach a Gothic class and one of the key Gothic elements that I, I love exploring with them is the uncanny and how it comes up in different ways in the Gothic genre. So I think I always had that in the back of my head, um, that idea of this house is now unfamiliar to you. And I love that you mentioned you know, the characters wandering around in the dark, bumping into things, because I don't know if this came across, but I kind of tried to leave it somewhat ambiguous. I, ha I had readers who seemed to fully believe that like the house changes in the dark. It, it's like morphing around them. Um, but I think there's also the possibility that it's just 
when we, we get freaked out in the dark, we think we know where we are, but we don't, even if we're in a place that should be familiar to us. So I, I think I kind of tried to leave it ambiguous as to whether the house was actually changing around them or whether it was just that horror and disorientation that happens when you're kind of wandering around in the dark. Yeah, I've just moved into a new house um, a few months ago and I it's really dark here. And when we turn, the, we've got blackout blinds. And when we turn the lights out at night, I cannot find the bathroom. And it made me realize after living in my, in my parents' house for like on and off for like two best part of three decades, suddenly living with my wife in this this old house in the north of England and not being able to find my way around it, it's it's really quite creepy because I'm so used to just stepping where I want and, and not even thinking about it. And now having to think, oh, where is the door? Where is the wall? Where is the light switch? It really makes you uneasy. Yeah, I I love the I love the idea of having a house that could get really dark. Uh, currently, where I am, there's pretty much always light coming in, uh, street lights and things coming in through the windows. Uh, but yeah, you get really familiar with where you are. You can walk around with your eyes closed. Uh, but, well, congratulations on on your house. Oh yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't doesn't appear to be haunted yet. Oh, that's good. There was in the first week we came down and found the kitchen door was locked. And my wife is convinced I locked it in the night. I don't think I did. But apart from that, we seem to be fairly spirit free. Because I am also a skeptic until it's three o'clock in the morning and I wake up <laughs> and then I get then I get very creeped out. Yeah, you know, even even skeptics can get creeped out. But I, I, that's happened to me too. Waking up in the middle of the night and I, I don't know. You think is there somebody outside the window peeking in at me? Is there? Did I just hear a strange sound? Uh, I think I think anybody can can be infected with that kind of fear. Yeah, me more than most. Uh, there's a great Stephen King <laughs> quote where where he says, "I don't believe there is a monster under my bed, but if I keep my foot inside the covers, the monster won't be able to grab it." Ooh, I like that. And that's pretty much how I feel. I don't think it's there, but I don't want it to have the chance to grab my foot. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's that's basically me. Talking about the uncanny, there is kind of spatial uncanniness, and there's a lot of that in this novel, and I. I I kept thinking, oh, it's quite House of Leaves, this, and the house mm. is a kind of organic space almost. Yes. There's a lot of that. But there's also, and this may be my misinterpretation, and this may be very very insulting, I don't know, I apologise if it is, but I felt like it was equally unmoored in time as well. And I don't just mean the time travel element or the time, you know, the, the time dilation element in the story. Even in the present, in the rational present, it really feels like, this is a world that is unmoored from any one era. So it's a, it's a contemporary novel set in the contemporary day and there are cell phones and there is discussion of Wi-Fi and all these things. But at the same time, there are loads of scenes that have a real kind of mid-century vibe. Is, is that intentional or, or am I just imposing my opinion? Uh, yeah, that is intentional. Uh, you're spot on there. And first of all, I love House of Leaves. It's it's so crazy uh, of a book, but, but it's amazing. Because the house is so kind of weird in, in the way that time works in it, I, I wanted there to be this feel of timelessness. It, you know, at one point, the characters mentioned they don't really like change the furniture or even rearrange anything too much because if, they're, if they do, they're worried they'll start getting they'll get confused because they'll see like a flash of the way a room used to look in the past and they won't know like, you know, where the couch is. Yeah. So there's a sense of timelessness. And I think your, your comment on like the mid century aspect was probably also a little bit of Shirley Jackson working her way 
it into it because you know all of her, her all of her works are just so firmly set in that era the, the scene that i loved is um when the photographer visits the house i mean it's i won't spoil it for you but it, it, i found it laugh out loud for me i found this real eruption of humor in the middle of a, quite a grim novel I'm, I'm guessing that was it's supposed to be intentionally quite funny. Yeah, I'm so glad that you did find that funny because I, I feel like I'm not a humor writer and I don't know often if any of my humor lands and it's kind of dark, cruel humor. But I really love giving them, the, the characters, the chance to just play and have fun, uh, even if it's at someone else's expense uh, and even if they're using ghosts to kind of play jokes. Yeah, it's it's ingenious and it, it it does it does land, but it is also very cruel. But that entire scene again to me felt like something from a, from a Hitchcock movie. So you know, guy turns up and and the way he talks to these women is quite presumptuous and he's quite just accept, expects to be weighed on hand and foot. And and then as the novel goes on, that those kind of like outdated gender issues come come more to the fore, and a lot of the horror becomes about the, the horror of being a woman in certain situations. Sure. I mean, that was also intentional. I, you know, obviously the, the three main characters of the book are all women and the male characters tend to be um, more evil. <laughs> but yeah. It, yeah, I, as I was really exploring Sam's character, you know, I really wanted to think about what would scare her, what, what freaks her out about living in the world. And she makes a lot of comments about, how she feels about being like a very slight, small kind of person. And I'm also a rather slight, small person. So I I was able to kind of draw on that when you're unable to be imposing in any way, uh, when you are like smaller than the people around you, I think there's that potential sense of, you know, being intimidated. Uh, I think she's intimidated by a lot of what's around her. She's a, she's a lot more paranoid than I am about that, too. <laughs> but she also had an experience that really amplified that. And I don't think I'm giving anything away because it, it happens fairly early. But, you know, she gets mm-hmm. she gets mugged um, at gunpoint. And I think that also really played into her fears. So I think that follows her throughout the book. And even when she's not the one who's sort of on the receiving end of, you know, the violence that happens against against the women of the story... She, her backlash against that, I think, is rising from that that feeling of being small in a big, scary world. You write about three very troubled women. So there's Sam, there's a sister, Elizabeth, and there's a mother, Agnes. Um, and I couldn't decide from, from moment to moment whether they were like an incredibly dysfunctional family or a great team. <laughs> and and there's, there's, I mean, there's one part that where I cheered out loud at something that, that the mother does, and you'll know what I mean. You spend a lot of time tracing the relationship between Sam and her sister, and I believe you have a sister. I do. Yeah. First of all, as she read the book, what does she think? And is any of that relationship based upon your own relationship? She, I don't think she's read it yet. She just got her copy that I sent her in the mail. I think there's an element of, you know, when sisters are growing up, they can be cruel to each other. They can be kind of passive aggressive. And um, I think there's potentially a lot of tension in relationships between sisters. And my sister and I certainly, you know, butted heads a bunch when we were young. Uh, our, uh, we're, we have a really good relationship, though. So I love my sister. Mel, if you're listening to this, <laughs> it's all good. You're not Elizabeth. But <laughs> I think I did really draw on 
that sense of how how sisters can, especially sisters who kind of almost have each other, because they're pretty isolated in the book. And, you know, Elizabeth has been put when they're kids in the position of kind of taking care of Sam because the, the mother sort of checks out for a period of their childhood. So I think all of that really influenced the tension that's that's in their relationship and that and that continues, you know, into adulthood when they clearly still have not resolved any of their issues. Yeah, my and my sister's kid is definitely not not the kid <laughs> in it will just be us. My nephew is, is wonderful and I love him and actually I dedicated the book to my niece and nephew because I'm so thankful that they are not evil children. Yeah, you, you kind of have to dedicate the book, otherwise the implication always just kind of lies there percolating that maybe they were the inspiration for it. Right. So this is your, forgive me if I'm wrong on this, this is your second published novel? It's actually my third, but I, I'm not, I don't speak of my first one. It was a long time ago. <laughs> okay, so there's Dark Carnival and there is, there is It Will Just Be Us. And, but this one is published under the name Joe Kaplan. Um, and the Dark Carnival was published under Joanna Parapinski. Why the pseudonym? So that came about, uh, that was actually a suggestion from the publisher. Uh, mainly, you know, Dark Carnival was such an indie book, uh, and I don't think very many people actually read it. The publisher suggested maybe trying something new, kind of a fresh start there. And I think it worked out really well. I stole my husband's last name, Kaplan. And uh, it's much easier to spell and pronounce. And uh, so I think it's been working out well. Yeah, so I'm liking the new, the new writer name. I've still published a lot of short stories as Joanna Parapinski, but I think I'm trying to move more towards Joe Kaplan just because it's, you know, it's an easier name to work with. Is there any plan to kind of pull that stuff together into a published collection? I've thought about that. I've never um, made any kind of actual move towards doing that. Um, but yeah, I love the idea of putting that together in a collection. I, I think you should do it for what it's worth. I think it's it's a great roster of stories from what I've read. I, I try and do my due diligence with these interviews, um, and I can't I haven't been able to read all, obviously, but for what I've read, is great. You also toy with kind of cosmic horror in this, and in, in it will just be us to an extent. Is is Lovecraft a thing for you? It seems to be for everybody, and I always ask this question because I am tired of, of, of Lovecraft. I'm, I'm really tired. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people are tired of Lovecraft. And in this, you, you really kind of riff on those themes, but in really clever, cool ways. Was that there at the back of your mind or, or, or is this something, you know, entirely new for you that you're working with? Yeah, that's been there. Um, I think that as, as sick of Lovecraft as I'm sure many people are, it's kind of impossible to escape that cosmic horror tradition. I think especially young writers coming up there's such a backlog of uh so so much work that has been influenced by lovecraft and by cosmic horror i mean you even get that in stephen king which is what my generation you know grew up with so i think that that's always just been there just because it's it's this sort of standing influence uh that you get but i i agree you know there's a lot i think we can leave behind from lovecraft uh, I, I like cosmic horror. I think cosmic horror is great, but we can remove it from its problematic origins and I think do new and interesting things with it. Um, I, I, you know, I mentioned a sci-fi book earlier. I, I do love cosmic themes. I, I'm such a weirdo. I love 
watching PBS space time and like reading about black holes and physics and stuff like that. Um, so I think my fascination with that, with astronomy, with, uh, you know, the cosmos also probably comes in and definitely influences, you know, the cosmic horror that might come out in my writing. Yeah. Cause I really wish that there was a, a book by you ideally that would further expand on these on some of the things that are left ambiguous in this novel so as you know the mirror and 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 the, the never and the hole to the other side of the universe and all these things that i'm saying in, in 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 broad terms so as not to spoil the story but i i want to know more and i really wish i could sit you down and go right okay explain this universe to me but I, what I always wonder is, do you understand that universe? Do you have all the rules? Do you have all the knowledge? Are you are you as kind of dumbfounded as me by the world that you built? Uh, I don't have all the answers. I, I feel like I'm the kind of person where I do want to have all the answers. I want to make all the answers. My instinct is to probably go overboard and figure all that stuff out. And then, and then I would be disappointed because there's no room for it in the story. Like it doesn't belong there. You don't need it. So I think that if I actually did take the time to work everything out, I would almost be frustrated with myself because, I, you know, it wouldn't belong in the story. So I actually kind of stopped myself from going too far down a rabbit hole and figuring out all the details. I have kind of an instinctive sense of what it, what it all is. I don't have all the details of like exactly how it happened, where it came from, what it, you know, how the world works. but. I feel like I have enough of a sense of it. I don't know. I don't know how to answer. Um, I have some kind of sense of it, but I definitely don't have all the answers. So if you sat down and asked me to go through it, uh, I don't think I would be able to. Oh, it's devastating. I was, I was going to I was so end sorry. the call and grill you. Yeah. No, I, I found out. Have you ever read The Fisherman by John Langan? Yes. Yes. Amazing. So I interviewed John last week. Um, the next episode, actually, um, at the time of recording, will be John Langan. So it'll be a few episodes back from when this goes live. Um, and John just let slip that he has two whole novels planned that go deeper into the, the mythology of that book. And I was just like, John, I need the novels now, or I'm going to basically come and kidnap your family like <laughs> give them to me now yeah. um and i always want that i always want to know what the rules of the world are but like you say if if it's all over explained and it's all you know too nailed down then it becomes flat and mm -hmm. and, and and inert but i i just really wanted to know more about that mirror in the in the lock yeah. room and i hope i'm saying all these things in a, in a in, in a kind of mysterious enough way to make people want to read the book rather than m make them think oh he's giving away spoilers. You know, these are all questions and mysteries you need to explore. So. Yeah, for sure. And again, I feel like the reason that I didn't kind of go into over explaining territory with that, even for myself, even for my own notes is because I'm like you, I want to, I want to know everything when I'm a reader or, you know, I want to know all the details. You know, I just, I, I watched the show dark on Netflix and that's another super time twisty a uh, very cool, creepy story. And I was just like obsessed with figuring everything out uh, from that. So I think I I have to make myself pull back a little bit so that I don't fall into that rabbit hole. I haven't watched that yet. It's on my to-watch list. Would you recommend it? Highly recommend it. It's it's very complicated show, but it doesn't... Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of those shows where it, it doesn't insult the viewer's intelligence. It lets you 
figure out all the complicated elements. And yeah, I, I just loved it. I highly recommend it. Yeah, it was on my list. And then during lockdown, I was like to my wife, we should watch this. And I was I was currently rewatching The Walking Dead from the start. And I was just like, <laughs> I cannot take the pressure of a global pandemic. I've watched like 10 seasons of, of, of zombies eating people. I just cannot go into, into another dark universe, no pun intended. So I, yeah. I put it on the back burner. Um, but I'm going to catch up with it sometime soon because I, I, I love anything where you can get lost in the minutiae and go down rabbit holes with theories and, and all that stuff. I, uh, I'm the ultimate fanboy. Oh, yeah. So I love <laughs> stuff like that. Uh, speak about TV and stuff in that direction. Are there any plans? And please tell me there are. Are there any plans or any overtures or anything to make a film out of this book? Well, it's funny that you ask about that uh, because... I, I'm assuming by the time this airs, we will have announced that we're working on that now. But it has been optioned. So yes, there are plans to, to, to adapt the book, which I'm really, really excited about. For a movie or for TV? They hadn't quite settled on that yet. Um, I think they were trying to work out maybe with a screenwriter whether they would want it to be for, for a movie or for perhaps the limited series or something. Wow. I mean, that's great news. And they were actually asking me, you know, do you, do you know the, all the backstories of everything? <laughs> so uh, I guess that's something I have been thinking about. Oh, that'd be great because it would make a really good, scary movie, but it would also really benefit from the long form treatment as well because you could, you could go into all the stuff that we're talking about, but then they may make you come up with all the answers then. That's the, the only problem. Right, right. <laughs> Um, but that that would be great. I, I, I as I was reading it, I just kept thinking this is so cinematic. Like there are some visuals in this novel. For example, the thing that has sent um, Sam's mother mm-hmm. mad that she's had to watch again and again. Like that is just ready to go as a as a hor- as a horrendous montage in a horror film. You know what I mean? I just I just kept yeah. picturing the um, the visuals with every chapter. So I'm delighted, even though the images came from my mind. I'm really excited by the idea of actually seeing somebody create them on a screen. There's one moment, and again, not to give too much detail as I keep caveating, but there's a scene where our protagonist is chased down a hallway by a little boy who is running with his arms contorted like a spider. It's one of the most unsettling images I've ever read in any book. And it was, it, that was the part where I, I actually thought, made a note to myself, say that this is in the upper echelons of The Shining, etc. Because it made me feel genuinely physically uncomfortable. Um, and the thought of that on a, on a IMAX screen is horrendous. I <laughs> guess this is a kind of a horror writer thing, but I love making people genuinely uncomfortable. <laughs> Yeah, well, you you really managed it with this book. You really did. So, Joe, I ask each of my guests to answer my rapid-fire four questions. It's it's my way of creating some kind of cohesion amongst all these disparate conversations. So if you're happy to answer, as I always say, I want the gut feeling, I want the thing that you just come straight to the front of your mind as I ask you. Is that okay? You good to go? Yeah, sounds good. Okay. Question one, what was your gateway to horror? My gateway was when I was a little kid, I was super into Goosebumps, Are You Afraid of the Dark, uh, the Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark books. Yeah, those were my early kitty gateways into horror. Um, And actually, fun fact, 
in terms of the scary stories to tell in the darks, there's a tribute anthology called Don't Turn Out the Lights, uh, a tribute to Alvin Schwartz's Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, edited by Jonathan Mayberry. And I have a story in that, uh, and that just came out at the beginning of September. So that was kind of a weird, like, childhood dream come true. Yeah, that's cool. I I think a lot of people in Britain aren't aware of that series of, 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 of books. It's a okay. real American meme, isn't it? Yeah, it seems like it was huge here. Nerds like me and all that, but they were they were kind of formative books for a lot of American teenagers, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. I think they're most famous over here because of the images, because they've got really creepy sketches. Yes, those images, that made it, that like haunted my childhood. Yeah, I haven't, they made a film, didn't they, last year about it? I haven't seen it, but I've heard nothing, nothing good about it, so I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, I saw it. it, you know, it didn't quite live up to my hope. I, I think because Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark is so close to my heart that, it, you know, nothing could live up to the original experience of reading the stories. And what's your story called in that? It's called Strange Music. It's about a haunted cello. Oh, nice. How very genteel. <laughs> I play the cello, so I wanted to write a story about it. Having just read this book, that almost feels like a bit of a palate cleanser, a bit nicer. Question two. If you could recommend one book to the people listening to this podcast, what would it be and why? They may have already read it uh, because it's been making a lot of buzz, but I would say The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. I read that uh, just recently and it totally blew me away. Honestly, like a perfect horror novel. You're the second person to recommend that. Really? Yeah. Sylvia Moreno-Garcia recommended it as well. Oh, I just read Mexican Gothic too. Another great book. It's good stuff, isn't it? It's good stuff, that book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, They're both, I mean, they were kind of like the tentpole books of the summer for yes. horror fans the only good indians i remember reading it thinking i i need to I, as i was reading it thinking i need to read this again because i know i'm not getting everything here you know but it's that features a a monster that i think is one for the ages and if ever they make a film yes. of that book i think that the the antagonist in that book will enter the 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 great roster of horror monsters up there with freddie and jason and, and pinhead and all the rest yes i agree yeah such a good book Question three, and I ask this selfishly because I'm in the in the beginning stage of trying to write a book. But what piece of advice would you give to a fledgling horror novelist? Cultivate patience and perseverance. Honestly, it's nothing happens overnight, and nothing seems to happen on the first try. It's <laughs> just it's a long. Everything is a long process. Writing and publishing, and I've just found that. Um, patience and perseverance have really gotten me through a lot, a lot of years of writing and publishing. Okay. Thank you. Okay. I'm going to make post-it notes out of these, all these answers and put them on my wall (laughs) in front of my desk. That's my, that's my strategy. Uh, And my last question and my favorite question to ask everybody, what truly scares you? So I have a touch of claustrophobia and the idea of being trapped in like a narrow underground tunnel or cave truly freaks me out. There's a little bit of that that comes out uh, towards the end of It Will Just Be Us. And mm-hmm. I lean even more into that in my my next novel, the one I just finished, because a good chunk of it takes place in the mine. Um, but I think the movie that struck the biggest chord with me in terms of this, this particular fear is, I don't know if you've seen it, I, it's called The Borderlands. It might actually have a different title in the UK. No, it's called The Borderlands. Yeah, okay, wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh, the I don't want to give it away, but that no. ending yeah. truly, truly disturbed me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. 
So that, that is like the pinnacle of my fear of like getting trapped in a small underground space. It made doubly powerful by the fact that it's kind of a comedy. Yeah, it's very funny in many ways. For a lot of the film, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, the Borderlands people. It's on Amazon Prime. I know that because I watched it a few months ago. Definitely go and watch it. It's a great Friday night, kind of have a couple of beers, order a pizza movie, but the ending will sicken you. So good luck with that. Right, yeah. so that brings us to the end of the end of the interview. I want to say thank you again because I know obviously we're close to publication day, so you must be really busy. So thanks for taking the time to speak to me. Thanks so much for having me on. No, it's been great. It's always good to talk to people who've written the books you love because I always like to know the the stories behind the story. This one, people, it will just be us from Crooked Lane Books. It is an absolute stone cold modern classic, and you should definitely go out and buy it in droves. It's great, Joel Kaplan. Thank you for talking scared. It was really good to talk to Joe because I feel like we're meeting her at the start of something momentous. I'd be astonished if It Will Just Be Us doesn't put a square in the dark centre of the horror map and I can't wait to read that next book about monsters and mines in the Old West. During our chat, we mentioned quite a few books, as we always do, I'd like to talk about a few of these, as some of them are absolute classics that I think these conversations will return to repeatedly. I'm sure most people listening to a niche show like this have already read most of them, but if not, now's the time. Why not? So we repeatedly mentioned The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, and we mentioned it so many times for a reason. It's seen by many as the the pinnacle or the epitome of the contemporary haunted house story and as a kind of perennial classic of mid-century American Gothic. Um, I mean, what can you say about it? It marries traditional takes on ghosts and hauntings with a, a nascent psychoanalytical theory that was really in vogue at the time um, in the character of Eleanor Vance, um, it's got one of the great heroines of, of Gothic literature. And Hill House itself is a haunted house for the ages. On top of that, I mention that Joel's language rivals Shirley Jackson's for its elegance. But, but trust me, go and read the first page of The Haunting of Hill House. And if you don't want to read more, I don't know what to say to you. It's an absolute classic American Gothic horror story, um, as is the 1960s movie directed by Robert Wise. We also discussed Jordan's End by Ellen Glasgow, which again is, is quintessential American Gothic. It's it's a short story and it's found in her collection, The Shadowy Third. And it you know it references all of those things that have come to come to denote American Gothics and Gothic, you know, families with hideous secrets, incest, deformity, disease, and, and the landscape is, is ripe. You can almost smell it much as you can with Joe's Great Dismal Swamp. Lastly, of the, of the classics we discussed, um, and perhaps for me the most important, is, is Mark Danielewski's House of Leaves. Now, I think the world is split into those who have read House of Leaves and those who haven't. It was published in the year 2000, and for me, it is the capstone, the final thing that can be said on postmodern horror. Someone may be wrong, someone may come along and do something else, but I don't see how you can, you can top 
what Daniel Luska did in House of Leaves. What can you say about it that the book doesn't say about itself? It's that meta. It's a book that takes the format of academic writing about hauntings, about horror. Um, it's a book in which the, the footnotes become as important as, if not more important than the actual text they're commenting on. Um, it's a book where you find yourself sitting at a desk with a pen and paper trying to crack a code to make a paragraph make sense. At its simplest form, it, it's a book about a family living in a house that is bigger on the inside than the outside. It's about everything. As they say, all life is there and all horror is there. And please, for the love of God, if you haven't read House of Leaves, go and read it. Um, it may take you a decade to get through it or you may romp through it in a weekend. I don't know it's different for everyone, but it is a rite of passage and I cannot recommend it enough. Whew. That's my promotion done. If you have any thoughts on any of the books mentioned in this show, then then do keep the chat going on Twitter. You can reach us at TalkScaredPod, or you can email me directly at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. Those who follow me on social media may start getting little sneak peeks of the show's new mascot, my my new eight-week-old puppy, Ted. Yeah, he's the official, official show mascot, and simply put, he's the, the best dog in the world. So if you don't come for the chat, if you don't come for the horror, come for the puppy photos. As ever. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts if you can, if, if you use that, that platform. It helps make the show more visible to all those poor souls who aren't listening yet. Uh, reviews don't need to be long, you know, simply, Neil is great, we love his accent, you know, that'll do. But for now, as always, tread lightly through the swamps, keep that door locked, believe in ghosts, because they are real, read good books. And remember, it's good to be scared.